the Bible has been used to justify things like racism, slavery, and war. The Bible itself is probably one of the greatest leading causes of atheism. Many young people just grab the Bible one day, decide to read through it, and say, I don't want anything to do with that. And so in the West, there has been a big push to sanitize the Bible. We have, you know, organized large campaigns and and, and started big churches with cool branding and good music so that we can change God's PR and public image. We think if we just had better music, better branding, if we just were cooler again, we could make God cool and we can sanitize the Bible. See, we have a problem with the Bible, And as modern, white, affluent people, we like to critique the Bible for being outdated and irrelevant. Brian Zand also writes, one of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, and the defeated. We know that history is written by the winners. That is true, except in the case of the Bible, is the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. And again, A.J. Swoboda adds to this when he says, for every millennial affluent white college student who is choosing to deconstruct their Christian faith, there are five non-white people with less privilege in the world who are finding in the Bible the greatest message one could ever imagine. My point is this, it is much easier to deconstruct the Bible as a whole than to deconstruct bad versions of reading the Bible. We need to learn or maybe unlearn our bad versions of reading the Bible without throwing the Bible out as a whole. And there have been a whole slew of bad readings of the Bible in the last 2,000 years, and we need to unlearn these bad readings of the Bible. So let's take a look at some of those bad versions of reading the Bible that cause us to form questions of doubt and skepticism. And the first that I want to confront to really encourage you this morning is hell, okay? What do we do with hell, right? This is like a pretty gnarly doctrine, right? Will only a select few people make it to heaven while billions and billions of people burn in hell forever? Did Jesus really teach that his father would torture people in hell for all of eternity? And the real question behind this question is what is that God really like? Like how could this God ever be trusted and how in the world could this ever be good news? What if we have it all wrong? What if God isn't a sadistic villain that roasts people in hell for all of eternity? What if our views of hell are misconceptions that are based more on Americanized Hollywood and Dante's Inferno than of Jesus of Nazareth and the Hebrew Scriptures? So where does our teaching of hell come from? Surprisingly, it comes from a Jewish teacher named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus spoke of hell more than any other person in the Bible. Mark Clark writes this, we can't escape the fact that hell, just as much as the love and grace of God, is a central New Testament, Jesus-driven teaching. So where do we get our teaching from hell from? We get it from Jesus. Now, the word Gehenna is the, the word in the New Testament that's most frequently translated into your English Bible as hell. It means It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word Valley of Hinnom. And it's used 12 times in the pages of the New Testament. 11 of those 12 times is from Jesus, and one of those times is from his brother James. This is what James says. He says, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by Gehenna. James is saying that there is something within you 
your tongue. There's something in you that is sparked on fire by Gehenna that when it is unleashed, it it spreads hellfire on God's good world. He's saying that your tongue has the power to unleash hellfire into the world that God created. So this is what James teaches about hell, but what does Jesus teach about Gehenna? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, we, we read the words of Jesus when he says, but I tell you, That anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, whoever says to a brother or sister, sister, raka, which I guess is an ancient cuss word, I don't know, um, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of Gehenna. So like James, Jesus believes that there is a destructive force that comes from within, What Jesus is saying here is it's not just murder that we should be concerned about, but it's the hatred that comes from within that is the real danger. It is a destructive force lit on fire by Gehenna that will wreak havoc on God's good world if it is not tamed. He continues in verse 29 and says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, no one has a problem with their left eye. Um, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. Now, Jesus is building on his idea, and he is saying that hell is not just something in you, but now it is something that needs to be removed from you. That's why he says, gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. It is something that needs to be removed from you because it has the destructive power to destroy your soul both in this life and in the life to come. Now, here's the greatest misconception I believe that we have in the West about hell. It's a misconception that goes like this. I live here on earth now, but one day when I die, I'll either go up to heaven or down to hell. There's a couple variations of this. One of them goes like this. Uh, I live here on earth, and if I do the right things, I will go up to heaven, and if I do the wrong things, I'm going to go down to hell. And a more Protestant version of this is uh, I live here on earth, But if I believe the the right list of things, I will go up to heaven. If I don't believe those list of things, I will go down to hell. And what happens is, is earth is seen as something is here today and gone tomorrow, but is totally irrelevant to the future and eternity. But what if I were to tell you that that is found nowhere in the pages of the Bible and is completely backwards? For instance, if you were to search the words heaven and hell in the Bible, how many times do you think they would show up? Five, ten, 15 times, maybe 200, 500 times if you're really reaching? What if I were to tell you that the words heaven and hell are never found together in the Bible? Zero times. The Bible talks about heaven and the Bible talks about hell, but not in a way that they are together as counterparts. Like this is not like black and white, good, bad, hot, cold, yin, yang. The Bible does not talk about heaven and hell as counterparts as we believe it in the West. What we do find is if you were to search the words heaven and earth, in the Bible, you would find that they show up about, on average, 200 times, depending on your translation. In the Bible, there is a counterpart to heaven, but it is not hell, it is earth. And this is what we see in the beginning when it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It does not say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, dot, 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 and hell. That's not what it says, okay? So the question we must ask is, where did hell come from? Great question. I'm really glad you asked. That's that's great. God created a good world, and he blessed it. Seven times, over and over, God looks at the creation. He says, it is good. The last time, in fact, he says that it is very good. But it doesn't take long for the humans that God create to make a mess of the good world that he has made. 
And what happens is they unleash sin all over God's world, lust, greed, and violence. See, sin, death, and hell are not good things created by God. They are not. These are seen in the Hebrew scriptures as anti-creation forces dragging creation down in order to devour it. Sin, death, and hell are not good things created by God. They are things that reach into God's created world. And heaven and earth, which were once one, we see this in Genesis 1, heaven and earth are one. They are torn apart. We see this in in, um, Psalm 115. What God is doing here is he's giving the humans what they want. We want to rule creation on our own terms. We want to run things the way that we want to. And so it says in Psalm 115, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. This is the reality of the world that we currently live in, a world marked by sin and decay, a world where God's will and the words of Jesus are not always done on earth as it is in heaven. See, God's mission is to get hell out of earth. Opposed to popular belief, his mission for your life is not to get you out of earth and into heaven. His his plan is to get rid of the intruders, which is sin, death, and hell. In in Revelation 21 and 22, hell, sin, and death are depicted as things being cast out of the city. Hell is something that when heaven and earth are being brought back together, it is cast out of the city. This is what N.T. Wright calls the marriage of heaven and earth. We see um, heaven depicted as a bride coming down to earth to be united once again as God intended. See, we are not depicted as going up to heaven, but in Revelation 21, heaven is being depicted as coming down to earth. See, God is throwing hell out of his city, but the problem that we're confronted with is the spark of hell is in me, and the spark of hell is in you. So the question of Jesus is, do I want it to be C.S. Lewis once said that the doors of hell may be locked, but they are locked from the inside. See, it is not God's will that people go there, and people do not go there kicking and screaming. People sadly go there because they choose it. Hell is where sin and destruction will be thrown outside of God's city and God's creation. It is not God's will that people go there, but some choose it. And so God is, in fact, saying, you can have your sin, but you cannot take it in here. God, according to Ezekiel, does not delight in the death of the wicked. According to Peter, God is not willing that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance. See, God is saying um, that anyone, he's not willing that anyone would go to hell, but some choose it. God is saying, you can have your sin, but I will not allow you to bring your sin into my new creation. And Jesus wants to get the root of hell out of us. That's why he uses very graphic language when he says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Jesus is using very hyperbolic language to make a very real and literal point that the spark of hell is within you and it needs to be removed. And Jesus' invitation is come, come and be a part of my kingdom, but I have to take the root of hell out of you. Come be a part of my kingdom, but you cannot bring in your sin. Uh, Joshua Ryan Butler says this, no longer will the bully rule the playground. The husband beat his family. The superpower exploit the developing world. When God establishes his new creation, he will protect it from hell's invasion. Jesus is saying, you can can come in, but you cannot bring in your sin. Jesus' invitation is come into the kingdom of God, but you cannot sacrifice your children in here. You cannot bring in your hellfire. I won't allow another husband to beat his family, another child to be sold into slavery in my kingdom. Love and justice will rule in the kingdom of heaven. Come and be a part of it, but you cannot bring in your sin. 
This is the teaching of the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament on hell. The second big question that we have is the problem of violence, in particular, the depiction of a violent God of the Old Testament. See, many people try to use the Canaanite conquest and other violent depictions of God in the Old Testament as justification for violence and bloodshed. The God that they they see is a God that is brutal and bloody and barbaric. He commands the slaughter of men, women, and children. And that God apparently looks nothing like Jesus of Nazareth because the God of the Old Testament does a lot of things that are just not Christ-like, right? This God looks like a violent monster. But what I would suggest to you this morning is that's just not a good reading of the scriptures. The Canaanite conquest God raising up a bunch of freed Hebrew slaves to take down the violent empires of the ancient world. N.T. Wright says, when God wants to change the world, he doesn't launch missiles. Instead, he sends the meek, the mourners, and the merciful. When God wants to put things to right, he doesn't scramble combat jets. He calls people to love and do justice. This is what God was doing with a bunch of freed slaves. He is taking down the oppressive, violent nations of the ancient Near East. God is using the weak, the poor, and the persecuted to overthrow the oppressive regimes that dominated the ancient world. God is putting an end to the rule and reign of the bloodthirsty gods of Canaan. This is what God is doing, and he is establishing his rule through the meek, the outcasts, and those on the bottom of the pile. See, the violent empires of the ancient world were known as the Canaanites. This is just a catch-all term. Those who lived in Canaan. And they were just like totally wild. Their, Their God, Baal, required their violent allegiance. And God was waiting patiently for 430 years for them to repent. Apparently, God isn't willing that anyone would perish. His desire is even for the Canaanites who are violent and brutal, that they would come to repentance. So God uses a group of newly liberated slaves to take down the violent empires of Canaan, and God commanded them to drive them out. This is God's consistent response to violence. He will not stand by and allow violence to rule his creation. To quote Joshua Butler one more time, He says, when we zoom out to the mighty empires of the ancient world, it's almost as if God is intentionally choosing the smallest, weakest, most vulnerable, helpless, and powerless nations he can to demonstrate to the mightiest, wickedest, bloodiest, nastiest powerhouse empires of the day that there is a message he wants to send loud and clear to the ancient world. His message, this is who I am. I am the rightful ruler of the earth, and I stand up for the weak, the exploited, and the oppressed. God is using the weak to take down the strong. The next thing that I want to point out is Israel's warfare policy. This is nothing like modern American warfare in any way. In, In Canaan, the kings were able to maintain control over the land with a professional army, a highly trained group of soldiers who stockpiled weapons. So what the Canaanites would do is they would tax their people, and with that tax, tax money, they would buy weapons and spears and horses and chariots. But God was directly opposed to this way of doing things. God wanted excess money to be given to the poor, not to, to be used to buy military weapons. And this is exactly what we see when he commands this in Deuteronomy 14, 29. God wanted his people to be different than the violent Canaanites. So God goes to the smallest kid on the playground. He says, let's take out the bully. God chooses the smallest, weakest, most helpless kid on the playground because he wants to free his world from sin and violence. 
But here's how he does it. Here is God's revealed battle plan for the Israelites. Here it is. Number one, pick a fight with the biggest and baddest empire. Okay. Throw away your armor. Bad idea. Number three, tell all the soldiers they can go home. Number four, make an offer of peace. And number five, walk into the battlefield and pray that God would show up. This is how Israel was to go to battle. How's that for a battle plan, right? Like if somebody tells you that the Bible supports violence and warfare, you can remind them of how God told his people to do that battle. Israel is outmanned, outgunned, and overpowered. And God equipped a a bunch of freely, you know, liberated slaves with some outlandish battle techniques and musical instruments. But what are we to make of them being told by God to, quote, utterly destroy every man, woman, and child, or to, quote, leave alive nothing that breathes? This is a daunting part of the Hebrew scriptures. We're left with the question, is God commanding the slaughter of innocent civilian women and children? I want to make four observations about this. Number one, Cities like Ai and Jericho are military strongholds. They are not places where people lived. So unlike the city of Vancouver, these would have been um, small settlements where political and military powers resided. In fact, archaeology reveals that the city of Jericho is probably about six acres in size. Okay? In context, the city of Vancouver is like 915 acres. This is why Israel could march around it seven times in one day and then th- overthrow it in battle. Like if you were going to do that in Vancouver, it would take weeks or months, but they do it in a day because this is a very, very small military fortress. The Canaanites, just newsflash to everyone, lived in the countryside because they were farmers. Okay, This was an agricultural society. They lived not in cities. They lived on the countryside. The cities, like Jericho, would have been small settlements of about 100 or less soldiers. Okay, so Israel is going to disarm the corrupt political and military powers that are oppressing the ancient world. They are not slaughtering innocent civilians. Number two, when you read that thousands of people died in battle, that's probably not actually what's happening. Okay, so the Hebrew word most commonly translated as thousand is the Hebrew word elif, okay? This word can sometimes mean thousand, but usually in a military context, it refers to a a unit or squad of soldiers. And this helps us make sense of a lot of different um, scenarios. One of them is um, Israel sends 3,000 men into Ai and they get defeated. And the Bible records that 36 of their soldiers died. And that was the defeat. And you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because they sent three units or squads of soldiers. If, you, if that makes sense, then you're, you're sending in like 30 people and if or like 40 people. And if 36 of them die, yeah, you got your butts kicked. Okay. Uh, this also helps us make sense of other scenarios where 12,000 are defeated. Old Testament scholars, a more, a more likely translation is 12 squads of soldiers were defeated. And if each had about 10 to 12 soldiers, you're looking at like 100, maybe 120 soldiers. So Israel is taking out a military hub, not slaughtering innocent civilians. Number three, when you read that God commanded them to utterly destroy them, or to leave alive nothing that breathes, this is ancient trash talk. We talk like this all the time. At least, maybe I don't, because I'm not really good at sports, but I'm sure you do, okay? <laughs> you, like, you have a gram, you're like, oh man, we like slaughtered the other team, we killed them, we totally annihilated them. Nobody's sitting around thinking like, oh my gosh, you guys are like psychopaths. Like, everyone knows that you're not using literal language, you're just saying that you won, 
And this explains why we read that Joshua, quote, did everything the Lord commanded him in Joshua eleven fifteen, And then we read that about the Canaanites on the very next page. If Joshua did everything that the Lord commanded him, there would be alive nothing that breathes because he would have killed every man, woman, and child. But we see the Canaanites and the author wants us to know that they remain here even to this day. See, what, what we need to understand is this is ancient Near Eastern trash talk, not a little command to kill everything that breathes. And there are numerous amounts of examples of this in the ancient Near East. This is a literary technique of the author just to say that they drove them out, not to say that they killed them off. Okay, um, We need to, as readers of the scripture, not just read the Bible literally, but read it literarily. The Bible is full of different genres and styles of writing. It was written over hundreds of years with different people and different times and cultures and languages. And so we can't just settle for reading the Bible literally. We need to read it literarily. We need to understand that there's different um, literary techniques and genres and things being used in these passages. So this is ancient trash talk. Number four, the command is driving out, not killing off. The exaggerated war language that I just mentioned is mentioned several times. But up to 50 times, the command is given to drive them out. Uh, three examples of this is Exodus 23:30. Little by little, I will drive them out before you. Deuteronomy 11:23. Then the Lord will drive out these nations before you. Or Joshua 23:9. The Lord has driven out before you, great and powerful nations. Up to 50 times this language of driven out is used in reference to the Canaanites. So this is how we approach the problem of violence, just with this one example of the Canaanite conquest. There's many, like, I haven't touched the flood or anything else like that. There's, but there, there are good answers for these questions. What we see in the Old Testament is not the depiction of a violent God if we're reading the Bible in an educated lens, understanding the context and literary techniques of those cultures. So we've dealt with hell. We've dealt with the misconception of a a violent God in the Old Testament. But now I want to address our final question, the problem of evil and suffering. This is probably the number one question that we're working through in this room. This is the, the largest question, I think, when it comes to wrestling with doubt. And the question is put simply, how do you believe in a God who creates the world out of love, calls it good, and at the same time, we see so much evil and brokenness in that world? Like, how can a good God allow things like terrorism, genocide, and cancer to exist in a world that he created good and claims to love? Like, why do bad things happen? If God is working all things for good, then why doesn't it seem like it? So what we're left with is either an all-loving God who's not in control, or all-controlling God who isn't truly loving. This problem is known as the rock of atheism. And so many people today and down throughout history say, I can't believe in a God who allows so much pain and suffering in the world. C.S. Lewis, um, when he was wrestling through this question as an atheist, he, he reflects back on that time and he says this, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Elsewhere, C.S. Lewis says, I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. Then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. See, the fact that evil and suffering bothers you is because you know that there's something wrong with it. 
right? Like if, if this is just all random chance, we're just molecules bouncing around in survival of the fittest, then we shouldn't bat an eye at the problem of evil and suffering. But the fact that it bothers us points to something beyond us. It points to the reality that there's a God in the world and that that world should be good and we all know it. There's something within us that all knows that this isn't the way the world was intended to be. So what do we do with evil and suffering? In particular, the question that I want to address this morning, is God to blame? First, let me say this. God did not and does not create evil. Evil is a distortion of God's good world. Again, seven times in the creation account in Genesis 1, God says over his creation, it is good. God does not create evil. Second, some think, think that everything that happens is God's will. They, they think that this is what it means for God to be sovereign. Um, the problem with that is the Bible has a very different understanding of God's sovereignty. It depicts a God who continually, by his own volition, chooses to limit his own power. So um, maybe you went through like a, like a season of pain or hurt or like you're going through a dark season. And have you, have you ever had like somebody come up to you and say, God has his reasons. You're like, is that supposed to encourage me? Uh, God has his reasons. Or like, his ways are not our ways. Or there's a purpose for everything. You're like, really? You think the God of this universe is doing this to me to make some kind of point? That sounds more like the devil of hell than the God of heaven. And that's because it is. This is not what God is truly like, right? We often misunderstand the father heart of God because we attribute the work of Satan to God and not the devil. And what we do is we make God the villain and not Satan. And this is backwards. God's sovereignty does not require him to bully his creation into resentful submission, or as some Calvinists believe, God does not predestine evil to get glory out of it. What kind of God is that? It is certainly not the God revealed to us in Jesus of Nazareth. So not everything that happens in this world is God's will. I'm going to say that again because it is a popular belief in the West. Not everything that happens in this world is God's will. This is why we see Jesus praying to his Father, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He prays that because God's will isn't always done on earth as it is in heaven. His prayer assumes this reality. His prayer assumes this worldview. See, what, what we see in the Bible is God giving free will to the world that he creates. And that freedom can be used to resist God's will. And this is what happens in the Garden of Eden. And this is what is happening in our world today, at least for the time being. See, God does not always get his way, even though he could. Even though he could enforce his will, he chooses not to. And what we see in the world that we currently live in is a world where other wills are at play. The free will of human beings and the will of the spiritual powers of evil. Which leads me to my third point. The world is literally caught up in a cosmic battle between God and Satan. Very weird, I know. But just a brief reading of the scriptures will reveal this reality. For example, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Or John says in 1 John that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Peter later summarizes Jesus' ministry by saying that he, quote, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. The Bible tells a story of a cosmic rebellion. And this rebellion has led to a spiritual battle between God and Satan. But it also tells us that Satan will lose that battle. Revelation 12 says that, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, 
Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sister who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. The devil may have his will be done on earth for now, but his time is short and he will be defeated once and for all. We also see this cosmic battle between God and Satan in Daniel chapter 10. So Daniel prays to God, okay? And he prays to God and he hears nothing, zilch. It's silence for 21 days, nothing. And then all of a sudden, an angel shows up and says, hey, wait, um, God actually answered your prayer the moment you prayed it, but uh, I got held up in a battle. And you're like, what the heck is going on? He's like, yeah, I was in a battle. And so we read this. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, and you're like, who the heck is this guy, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. You're like, what in the world is happening? Like, what is going on with the biblical worldview? Apparently, God sent an angel to, to Daniel, but he got held up in a battle with this angelic force that had this like regional power over Persia, and he got held up for 21 days, and one of the archangels had to come and get him out of the bind. And you're like, holy smokes, okay? So, so apparently his, his prayer isn't answered, not because God wasn't willing or able, but because there was a spiritual battle going on in the heavenlies that Daniel didn't know about. See, what I think some of us need to realize that what we see in the story is that God's will isn't always done because God's will can be resisted and there is a spiritual battle going on. And some of us may be going through pain and, and, and hurt in this moment need to know that it is not God who is letting you down. There is a spiritual battle going on and some prayers aren't answered because God's will can be directly contested, to quote Paul, by the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So to summarize, God did not create evil. Number two, not everything that happens is God's will. And number three, there is a battle between God and Satan. So when people say, I can't believe in a God who allows children to die of hunger or who would take my dad's life or would cause all of these bad things to happen, and they say, I hate that God. I look at them and say, I hate that God too. That is the God of this age. And I hate that God. See, Satan, not God, is responsible for evil. But God is not sitting back and doing nothing. God is doing something about evil. Listen to me. The cross is what it looks like when God comes to deal with evil. Evil's power is exhausted and overcome by the cross of Christ. N.T. Wright says this. What happens to God's justice when it takes on human flesh? It gets its feet muddy in the garden and its hands bloody on the cross. We live in between God's victory over evil on the cross and his, finally, his final victory over evil once and for all when he returns. We live in between these two realities, and we look forward to his coming kingdom, where his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in this moment, we see inbreakings of that kingdom when people get healed, when salvation breaks through, and we get glimpses of that into our community. See, my question for us as we finish is, what if God is better than we ever imagined? What if he is nothing like the God of this age? See, we need to deconstruct our misconceptions of God, but not deconstruct God altogether. See, our God is the God who takes on evil and suffering. He is the God who lays down his life for his enemies. 
He is the God who triumphs over evil through love. He is the God revealed in Jesus who overcomes evil with good. See, we need to to confront our misconceptions of God and, like Thomas, encounter Jesus in the midst of our doubts. So what do you think God is like? Everything hinges on how you answer that question. What do you truly think God is like? God came to Moses and he said, this is who I am. I am Yahweh, Yahweh, the God who is slow to anger, compassionate and abounding in steadfast love. This is who I am. We need to deconstruct our misconceptions of God. See, our God will not relent until his world is free of sin and violence. Not until he wipes every tear from our eyes with his nail-pierced hands. Not until the oppressed are set free and every son and daughter knows how loved they truly are. Not until everything is put back to right will our God rest. This is who God is. This is the God we see in Jesus. And he is so much better than we think. Dare to believe that God is truly as good as he is revealed to be in Jesus. Dare to believe that God is good. Let's pray.